The ingredients for today's episode are La Vili, Anticipation, and Pims. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. In no other country in the world does the publisher possess the power and authority that he does in Italy. This is a quote from an Italian music critic in 1879. An odd way, don't you think, to start an episode about Puccini's first opera, La Vili? However, in order to understand how the opera, and therefore the maestro himself, came about, we need to first take a look at the rival music publishers during Puccini's early days. For the first half of the 19th century, Giovanni Ricordi dominated the publishing business in Italy. He reigned supreme until his death in 1853. Under his tenure, his publishing house, Casa Ricordi, represented Italy's leading composers, everyone from Rossini to Verdi. In 1841, a former copyist for Ricordi, Francesco Luca, opened his own publishing firm, Casa Luca. Luca had been working in publishing houses in Leipzig and learning all of the newest techniques for music publishing. His new firm introduced the octavo vocal score instead of the oblong format that Ricordi was still using. This made the music easier to sit on a piano and simplified the cleanliness of the score. Luca was also the first publisher in Italy to use the treble clef for all upper voices instead of using the soprano clef, the tenor clef, and the alto clef for the singers. However, his largest innovation for the publishing world, composers offered their works directly to the publisher, and then the publisher would place the works in suitable theaters for performances. This freed up the composer to not have to worry about trying to get their works performed. By 1870, this had become the general practice in Italy. The rise of the professional conductor meant that the composer no longer had to lead rehearsals for their own works. They could instead oversee the rehearsal process and be able to make changes on the spot as needed. Luca was also quick to add, quote, non-Italian composers to his ever-growing roster. In the 1860s, this list included the French giants Mabir, Gounod, Thomas, and by a stroke of sheer luck and genius, Wagner. In the mid-1870s, the power began to shift back to the firm of Ricordi, now under the leadership of Giulio Ricordi. Ricordi now started to do lavish promotions of their newest works and started the Ricordi Publishing House magazine. Side note, Ricordi, under Giulio's guidance, would become the sole publisher for all of Puccini's works, except La Rondine. On top of these two powerhouse publishers, there was another beginning to take the limelight, Sanzono. Even though they had been around since the early 1800s, it was the founder's grandson, Eduardo, who in 1874 moved the firm into the music publishing business. Before we go any further, I think it's time to have a cocktail. 
The cocktail for this episode is one of my favorite drinks to have. It's a standard in our house, and it is called the Pimm's Cup. Pimm's is a gin-based liqueur. It was first produced in England around 1823 by a gentleman by the name of James Pimm. What an original name, huh? He owned an oyster bar in London, and he offered the tonic, again, gin-based with a secret mixture of herbs and liqueurs, to aid in the digestion for his diners. He served it in a small tankard known as the number one cup, hence the name of today's drink, the Pimm's Cup. It was originally served with lemonade, but ginger beer kind of takes the place, or ginger ale, but usually it's served with ginger beer these days. can also be mixed with champagne to be called a Pimm's Royal Cup. Side note. It is one of the two standard drinks at Wimbledon, Chelsea Flower Show, the Henley Royal Regatta, and the Glenbourne Festival Opera. What's the other of the two standard staple drinks at all of these events, you ask? Champagne. To make a Pimm's Cup, you need Pimm's, you need some lime juice, and you need some ginger beer. It's a very simple cocktail. So this is what you do. Put some ice in a glass. Add an ounce and a half of Pimm's liqueur. Add a quarter of an ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, or you can just cut a lime in quarters and use one of the wedges, squeeze it into the glass, and then drop the lime over into the glass. And then top it off with ginger beer. Stir and enjoy. That's a Pimm's Cup, my friends. Of course, there are many variations on this drink. You often see it made with cucumber. You see people putting mint in it, and there's a lot of muddling going on. You can do it that way, but this is my version. It's the fast, easy, and I think the most delicious version of this drink. And in the summertime, when it's hot outside and I want a Pimm's Cup, I want it pretty quick. So this is the way we make them in our house. Enjoy, my friends. So, my friends, how are you enjoying your Pimm's Cup? I hope you like it as much as I do. And no doubt, somewhere in the middle of this episode, I'm going to be making a refill. But anyway, we were talking about Sangzono. He decided to compete with Ricordi's weekly magazine, the Gazzetta Musicale di Milano and published his own called the Il Teatro Illustrato. This magazine was advertised as, quote, the richest theatrical journal in existence. The April 1883 issue announced a competition open to young musicians of Italian nationality for an opera in one act on an idyllic, serious, or comedic subject with a prize of 2,000 lira following a performance in Milan at the journal's expense. The panel of judges consisted of three professors from the Milan Conservatory, one of whom was Puccini's teacher, Panchielli. The other two judges were the organist at the Milan Cathedral and the conductor, Faccio. Together, the judges would pick the two best operas from those submitted. The public would be allowed to choose the winner, and the entries were to be submitted before the end of the year, and then the panel of judges would announce the winners in March. Puccini, still with three months of school ahead of him, decided to enter. In the last paragraph of the announcement, stress was placed on choosing a good libretto, quote, both as regards subject matter and versification, since it is desirable in the theatrical work 
that there should be no discrepancy between the qualities of music and text. It was with this in mind that Puccini's teacher, Ponchielli, and also a judge in the competition, keep that in mind, that's really important coming up, paired Puccini with Fernando Fontana, a poet librettist who was already fairly active in the opera world. Fontana was considered to be the heir of Boito. He published his ideals in a thesis titled In Teatro. In his writing, Fontana declares the present form of theater as dead. Historical drama, whether music or spoken, falsifies the events it relates. Fontana recognized the public's growing taste for symphonic music and that it would eventually transform conventional opera into a, quote, symphonic poem with scenery, of which Fontana wrote, quote, each act would form a movement and in which scenery, costumes, libretto, and singers would function like individual instruments within an orchestra. Fontana believed that the libretto should not be given to the audience for reading during a performance, but instead a poem that fills in the outlines of the plot in language worthy of the subject. Think synopsis. It was an unrealistic theory, but it would have a certain bearing on his first collaboration with the young composer Puccini. A meeting was arranged at Ponchielli's country house on Lake Como. It is said that Puccini and Fontana became fast friends. Fontana agreed to lower his personal fee for Puccini, understanding that he was a poor student. But if Puccini were to win the prize, he would pay part of it to Fontana. Puccini was happy with the arrangement, and Fontana already had a subject in hand. It was based on a short story by Alphonse Carr, who, as a small side note, was a friend of Alfred Musset. The base of the story is the central European legend about the ghosts of jilted maidens who dance nightly in the forests. And woe be to the faithless lover who encounters them, for then he must join them and dance until he falls to his death. So basically, it's like any college town nightclub on fraternity night. Side note, this is the same story for which the classic ballet Giselle is based. Unlike the happy ending of the ballet, Carr's story is more realistic and gruesome. Okay, my friends, so before we dig into the plot of Carr's original story, everyone take a drink. So here we go. The setting is a village community in the Black Forest ruled by the head forester Wilhelm Wolf. The story begins with the father at a dance of his daughter, Anna, with the young villager Heinrich, with whom she has long been in love. Soon afterwards, Heinrich is summoned to Mainz 
to the bedside of a sick uncle. Before leaving, he hangs a wreath of flowers outside Anna's window as a pledge of his consistency. However, the sight of his favorite brother's son restores the old man to health. Heinrich agrees to prolong his stay, the more willingly since he has begun to take to his new surroundings. What is more, his uncle has a beautiful daughter who will one day inherit his wealth, and Heinrich soon yields to his family's pressure to marry her. Anna's brother, Conrad, arrives on the day of their wedding and bitterly insults the bridegroom. A duel is fought, from which Conrad returns home mortally wounded. Anna pines and dies. Only Wilhelm is left to invoke God's vengeance on the murderer of my two children. A year has passed. Heinrich's uncle has at last died, leaving him the richest man in Mainz. To please his wife, now expecting their first child, Heinrich has bought a castle not far from his native village. One night he returns from hunting later than usual. As darkness falls, he hears distant voices singing melodies that recall the village dances of his past. Drawn by their sound, he finds himself in a clearing surrounded by dancing maidens of unearthly beauty, one of whom bears the face and form of Anna. She holds out her arms to him and they begin to dance. The next morning, his body is found in the glade. So my friends, I have to ask you, while we're taking a sip of our cocktail, what was it with Fontana and convoluted stories? Remember, he's also the one that did the libretto for Edgar. In building the plot for the one-act opera, Fontana concentrated the action on two moments, Heinrich's departure and his return to the forest to be danced to death. Conrad is eliminated and Heinrich is renamed Roberto. They just felt it was easier to sing that name. A more radical alteration turned the rich uncle into an aunt, ooh, that's exciting, whose death has occurred before the rise of the curtain, so that Roberto has merely to go and collect his inheritance. While there, he falls under the spell of a local spirit on whom he spends all his newly acquired wealth, returning home penniless and remorseful. But his repentance is unavailing. He tries to pray but cannot. Anna is determined to have her vengeance. Fontana wrote, quote, With the success of his Capriccio Symphonico still fresh in my memory, I thought the young composer would need a fantastic subject, and I sketched out to him the scheme for Lavilli. Fontana is speaking of the composition of an orchestral work Puccini composed as a graduation exercise from the Milan Conservatory. The piece quickly became a hit around Milan and helped put Puccini's name in conversations around the city's musical community. In reply to the libretto, 
Puccini wrote to his mother, quote, It is a good little subject. It will mean working quite a lot in symphonic descriptive genre, and that appeals to me a good deal since I think I can have success in it. The libretto was done by mid-September, and Puccini returned to his family home in Lucca to begin the composition. Time was short, and he was a slow worker. Somehow it was finished within the prescribed deadline and delivered to the panel at the last possible moment. Now, the waiting. Three months of waiting. At the beginning of April, the judges finally announced their choices. Out of 28 entries, five were deemed worthy of mention. The two selected received their performances on May 4th at the Teatro Manzoni. They each received equal applause from the audience and therefore split the prize money. The other three were mentioned in the local newspapers. But for Puccini and his opera, not a single word was mentioned. Side note, and this one makes me giggle. The two operas that won the competition, you've never heard of, and they never made it into the standard rep. And in fact, after their initial performances in Milan, they were never performed again. Although the entries were submitted anonymously, two of the judges, Panchielli and Faccio, must have already been familiar with Puccini's handwriting. Remember, Panchielli was Puccini's teacher. He had already attracted attention as a composer of promise, and he made no secret about his intention of entering the competition. However, there was a clause in the rules for the competition that made Puccini's score a default. It was completely illegible. Puccini wrote to his mother while waiting for the results, quote, The result of the competition will be known at the end of the month, but I have little hope. Side note, talk about horrible penmanship. Jump online sometime and just Google Puccini manuscript and look at how horrible his writing is. And then try to decipher that as a musician. That's why his score, that's why his opera was disqualified. So my friends, the problem with the Pimm's Cup is for me, they go down pretty quick. So I'm going to play you a clip from La Vili. And I'm going to make another drink. So enjoy this, and I'll be right back. After not winning the competition, Fontana was not prepared to give up. One of his acquaintances was the influential journalist Marco Sala. Sala was famous in Italy for one of his favorite pastimes. He used to teach improper songs in Italian 
to young, prim English women who would perform them without understanding a word of what they were singing and then get in trouble for it. But anyway, it was at Sala's home that Fontana arranged a meeting for Puccini to play his score to a select group of people. Among them, the now owner-manager of the publishing firm Casa Luca. After this, they all agreed that the judges had it wrong and Puccini's work should have won, and they set out to raise the money to have a public performance of Lavilli at the Teatro del Verme. Boito was there, and he gave the largest donation of the evening, 50 lira, which was a ninth of what they predicted it would cost to produce the show. The performance took place as part of a triple bill on May 31st, 1884. In the bass section of the orchestra was the composer Muscogny, who at Puccini's invitation left his post in the orchestra pit and joined the composer in his box. The audience's reception of the performance exceeded all expectations. The intermezzo was double encored, and Puccini was called out for solo bows 18 times. The three scheduled performances were increased to four and all sold out. The reviews were good. One critic wrote, quote, Never can we remember having seen a budding maestro as heartedly acclaimed as was Puccini. Another critic wrote, quote, The virtues we encounter in Lavilli reveal in Puccini an imagination singularly inclined to melody. In his music, there is freshness of fantasy. There are phrases that touch the heart because they must have come from the heart. And there is craftsmanship so elegant and refined that from time to time we seem to have before us not a young student, but a Bizet or a Massonet. In short, I believe that in Puccini we may have the composer for whom Italy has been waiting for a very long time. Even Verdi wrote, quote, I've heard the musician Puccini very well spoken of. He follows modern trends, which is natural, but he keeps steadily to melody, which is neither ancient nor modern. However, it seems that the symphonic element predominates in him. No harm in that. Only here, you have to tread carefully. Opera is opera and symphony is symphony, and I don't think it's a good thing to put a symphonic piece in an opera merely for the pleasure of making the orchestra dance. One of Verdi's former students, Emmanuel Muzio, wrote to Ricordi, quote, I congratulate you, sir, because Verdi wrote to me a few weeks back that you have at last found what you've been looking for for 30 years a true maestro, one Puccini who, it seems, possesses qualities out of the ordinary.
Ricordi was quick to recognize the talent of the young Puccini, and the day after the final performance, he invited the composer and poet to his villa on Lake Como to discuss future plans. In the meantime, he bought the world rights to La Ville and commissioned a full-length opera from Puccini. To enable the composer to work on the new work in relative comfort, Ricordi granted Puccini a monthly stipend of 200 lira for two years. It wasn't a huge sum, it was twice what he had received as a student, but at least he could now pay off his outstanding debts. And now, with a commission in hand and a monthly living stipend, Puccini returned home for a well-earned rest. However, upon his return home, tragedy struck. His beloved mother had been ill for some time and unable to keep food down. She was also growing weaker and weaker with each passing day. On July 17th, she died at the age of 54. Puccini wrote to a friend, quote, I am always thinking of her. Last night I even dreamed about her. So today I'm feeling sadder than usual. No matter what triumphs my art may bring to me, I shall have little happiness without my dear mother. Take what comfort you can and try to summon up more courage than I have so far been able to do. Work is the only balm for great sorrow. This was Fontana's advice to Puccini. And with this in mind, revisions for Lavili began. First, a cavatina was added for Anna after the opening chorus. The intermezzo was rewritten to add a chorus. And what was now the second act was expanded by adding a scene for Roberto, and Anna's aria then became a duet. Finally, the opera's heading on the title page of the score was changed from, quote, legend in one act and two parts, to now, quote, opera ballo in two acts. By November 21st, the new version of the opera was ready. During the revisions, an article was published about Puccini in Ricordi's magazine, the Gazzetta Musicale di Milano. In the article, the author wrote, quote, This extremely young maestro from Lucca is 172 years old. Yes, 172, because he is the latest bloom on a tree that was planted in 1712. He absorbed music with his mother's milk and showed remarkable aptitude from the start. The new version of La Ville opened the carnival season of 1884-1885 at the Teatro Raggio on December the 26th. Puccini received four curtain calls, but more important was the revival at La Scala on January the 24th, 1885. The public responded favorably, and the opera ran for 13 nights. One critic wrote, quote, One spent a delightful hour and a half with music that is good, thoughtful, and stands on its own two feet without the prop of vulgar sensationalism. And this indicates in the writer not only a rare talent, but an even rarer artistic conscience. Another critic wrote about the Wagnerian poison that was corrupting native talent in Italy. He wrote, quote, Let Puccini remember that he is Italian, and let him feel no shame on that account, and let him prove it by allowing free reign to his fertile imagination. He will reap the glory of it, and it will be Italian glory.
Side note, the Hamburg premiere of La Ville in 1892 was conducted by none other than the great conductor-composer Gustav Mahler. And the U.S. premiere didn't happen until 1908 at the Metropolitan Opera, conducted by Arturo Toscanini. The question for today's episode actually is coming from one of our team members, Jefferson Reidenauer. He's our art director, one of our co-producers. And he was asking a question that I think is actually really good because it continues the conversation that we were having a little earlier in the episode about Fontana and how Fontana arranged this private meeting of uh, these people for Puccini to play his score from. So Jeff wanted to know, what is it about Lavilli that Fontana, the librettist, saw in this opera? What was it about this opera that he saw that made him want to go to all of these people and put together a private reading of the opera so that it could then eventually get produced? So I think it was the fact that Fontana saw, Fontana was seven years older than Puccini. And I think that it was the fact that Fontana saw in Puccini the gift of melody, which is what we all love about Puccini. That's one of the things that everyone's always saying is, oh, that's one of the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard, blah, blah, blah. Puccini could construct a melody better than anyone. And I think, I honestly think that that's what Fontana saw was this gift of creating these beautiful, heart-stopping, show-stopping melodies, even in his first opera right out of school. Remember, we had talked a little bit a little earlier about the symphonic piece that Puccini had written. And he actually wrote two, the Capriccio Symphonico and the uh, Preludio Symphonico, student pieces for orchestra. And it's from these two pieces that Puccini would eventually rob throughout his whole composition career and come up with melodies and come up with thematic material. From the Preludio Symphonico, it opens with the melody that Puccini would use in Edgar, with music that he would use in Manon Lescaut. The Capriccio Symphonico opens verbatim the first three pages of the score of La Boheme. So even as a young composer, as a student, Puccini was able to craft these melodies and also his gift of orchestration. And that comes from his study of Wagner and from his obsession with Wagner. So I think that that's what Fontana saw in Puccini was finally a composer that could write these incredible melodies and orchestrate this music in such a way that it really transported you out of the theater and it transported you in your imagination so that you could really tell the story. Remember, Puccini was a Verismo composer. He kind of came in at the tail end of the Verismo movement. And remember, Verismo means real and truth. And so Puccini, with his gift of melody, with his gift of orchestration, was able to do that. So I think that that's what Fontana saw. And I think that that's what all those people sitting in that room that night that Puccini played his score for all of these people on the piano. And then they um, gave the money for a production to be performed with orchestra and everything later. And then that's what kicked his career into high gear. So excellent question. And that was uh, really kind of fun to talk about. So throughout the episode, you've been hearing clips from my recommended recording. This is conducted by Lauren Metzel. It's the National Philharmonic Orchestra. It has Placido Domingo, Renata Scotto, Leo Nucci. And the narrator, the speaking part that you hear, is Tito Gobi. Really great recording. It's available on CD. And I think you can even find it on vinyl if you have a place where you can find vinyl these days. Fun recording. 
So enjoy it. There are about six or seven recordings of this opera available. This is the one that I really like. My recommended reading today has absolutely nothing to do with Lavili, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention this book. It's called Famous Puccini Operas, and it's by Spike Hughes. It starts with Manon Lascaux. He, in the book, he leaves out Lavili and Edgar. He starts with Manon Lascaux, and then he goes through Turandot. But in this book, Spike Hughes breaks down the stories. He breaks down analysis of the music. But even if you're not a, a musician or a, or a theory scholar or anything like that, it's a very readable book and a very enjoyable book. And every fan of Puccini should have this in their library. So Famous Puccini Operas by Spike Hughes. Join us next time as we end our first season with Puccini's grandest opera, Turandot. The last word is our cocktail of choice, and we'll learn all about Puccini's actual last words. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan Keane. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson. 